Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. I was talking to a senior uh, person in the electric utility industry just a few days ago, and he said this extraordinary thing to me, and I thought it was really very nice. He said every time he turns on a light, I need to turn on one here to show how it works, uh, he was amazed that electricity that it came on, and that was his job, making electricity. Well, I actually know that feeling. I know what it's like, because I used to be a private pilot. And when I was going down the runway, I always wondered, will this thing really go in the air? It doesn't make sense. And then it did. And so I, I thought it was rather encouraged to know that people can have doubts about electricity, because for most of us, electricity and its arrival in, this, in the socket is magic. It's like breathing in, breathing out. We have no doubt that it will be there on demand. And of course, you can drive from, from the Florida Keys to Alaska and plug in your appliances all the way along, knowing they will work and that you can charge your cell phone or you could uh, um, you know, put a whole appliance, uh, you know, domestic appliance if you wanted to, if you had a, a, a temper or something of that nature. Uh, but electricity is also a huge matter of public policy and the matter of perceptions. Uh, we take it now for granted. It is absolutely fundamental to civilization, to modern life, to the way we have lived our lives and to the comfort and pleasure we have known. We live in a cocoon of electricity. Every day we get up, we're cooled, we're heated, we're entertained via electricity. It's changed society. Uh, it's made life easier for people, it's, for example, enabled women to take a full role in, in national life in a way that they couldn't when they had the drudgery of the home to contend with. And it too has enabled us to live in the South and the West in places that wouldn't be too hospitable otherwise. One thinks of parts of Texas and Louisiana, et cetera, where air conditioning is almost essential and we can't survive without it and people did but you wouldn't want to do it. So we're going to talk about electricity today and some of the challenges it's faced, particularly some of the challenges it's facing as a result of the war in Ukraine, the Russian exclusion from world energy markets and from critical mineral markets, and where we go from here. I have two enormously knowledgeable friends of mine today to talk about these things. Brian Keane, president, of Smart Power and David Naylor, president of Rayburn Country Electric Cooperative. Welcome, both of you. Uh, how do you see the future, David? Do, are you feeling in your service territory and your systems uh, the pressure of uh, supply chain interruption? We certainly are, uh, particularly in terms of equipment, uh, as, as uh, you know, we're. We're fortunate in our area that uh, a lot of folks are relocating uh, into our, our region, but the, some of the supplies and equipment that we need uh, to to accommodate that is certainly we're seeing a uh, we're, we're seeing longer lead times and just a general challenge of being able to 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 meet that that demand. Not only are you seeing huge population growth in your part of Texas, in fact, throughout Texas. But also, you've got these big companies, the data miners are moving in with 
enormous electric demand. Uh, do you welcome them or are they a problem? So we're, we're, we welcome them. I mean, we, uh, there, there's definitely some benefits uh, to them uh, to the extent that uh, we were able to, uh, you know, isolate them, if you will, from the standpoint where our, uh, our members are not having to subsidize them. But, uh, you know, there's, there's a tremendous amount of flexibility in their loads that can be beneficial to our overall system and and we're really doing everything we can to to accommodate and work with and, and make it a a win-win for all all parties it's an interesting problem uh not one i had really dreamed of when i <laughs> stepped well, in there's a lot of things going we had not dreamed of i i always remind people that back in the 1970s at the creation of the department of energy uh, we were discouraged from asking questions about natural gas because uh, the deputy secretary once somewhat testily turned on a reporter from the Energy Daily and said, don't ask about natural gas, it's a depleted resource. Uh, technology came in, some new regulatory regimes, and it's very plentiful now, and we are a tremendous exporter of natural gas and set to export more. Except, Brian, how does that sit with the environmental movement, which has been trying to discourage all fossil fuels, and natural gas is a fossil fuel. Uh, how does that sit with them? This idea of the president that we must export to Europe to help Europe, but and for decades we should build, he says, more terminals, etc. They cost at least twenty billion dollars each, which means that you're going to have to have at least a 30-year life probably to amortize them, to pay for them. Uh, how does that sit with the environmental movement? That we, on the one hand, the president is trying to curb the use of fossil fuels and natural gas, and so are many in his party. On the other hand, we are now setting ourselves out to be uh, the sort of world supplier of gas, especially in emergencies. Well, let's pull it back a little bit and kind of reframe your question, because really what we should be thinking about. No, no, just answer it. <laughs> no, let's, let's understand with it. Really what we are is we're all energy consumers, right? So every single, everything we do uses energy. Um, we use energy when we're asleep. Our homes are powered constantly. Our businesses are powered constantly. Everything we do uses energy. So what we want to do, and by the way, when we talk about sustainability, when we talk about climate change, we're really talking about an energy challenge. Um, and it's really about the types of energy we're using. What we've always talked about is actually the need to diversify our energy portfolio, simply in, in, if for no other reason, because of the challenges we find ourselves in today, where one, one country can actually have such a challenge, such an issue, create such challenges for our own country or for other countries because how they can control the spigots. Then we have the challenge, the challenge of sustainability as well. So really we need to diversify and we're doing that. And it's really pretty exciting because what you see are individuals buying new and different types of energy, renewable energy, buying new and different types of cars. But then you actually see utility companies themselves buying renewable energy, which is really exciting. You see Southern Cal Edison that actually commissioned the creation of three gigawatts of solar battery storage. Three gig well, let's, uh, let's just back up here a little bit. On the one hand, this is happening. Yeah. On the other hand, you're moving from a dependence on a, a domestic fuel to batteries, batteries in cars, batteries to solar energy, where you're very dependent on a rather shaky supply chain for um, 
all of the components of a battery, uh, lithium and uh, <clears throat> uh, cobalt, things like that, which cobalt all comes from the Congo, not a good place to rely on. It's rather politically unstable. Uh, uh, nickel, which comes from politically unstable place, which will create essentially new OPEX, new countries with a disproportionate global geopolitical force that they wouldn't have had previously. And also OPEC itself, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, gets to be more important because all of a sudden uh, Russia's out of the picture and traditional OPEC members like Saudi Arabia become very important. Sure. So, uh, you know, it's a new well, world. I would just, the, the supply chain issues that, we'll find, that we are finding ourselves in are actually uh, hastened simply because the, the adoption of clean renewable energy and battery storage is actually happening so much faster than we anticipated. So it's actually kind of a, it's a fascinating challenge because, wow, people and utilities are taking it so much faster. But if I can just finish one quick thing. With Southern Cal Edison taking three gigawatts of solar storage, just to find for our listeners and viewers, gigawatts. It's the equivalent of building a nuclear power plant. It's the equivalent of two coal-fired power plants. And they are going to go online uh, from start to finish in 10 months. And these are lithium-ion batteries. Yes. And, and how long do they last when you draw them down? They'll, they'll last for 30, 50 years. They'll, they'll... No, no, no. When, you, when you're oh. turning from normal supply to battery supply, it's about four hours, isn't it? No, well, no, it'll, it'll actually, actually, it'll last. What the reason they want them is because they know so many people are going to electric back, electric cars. And that's what they need to make sure that they're, the job of electric utilities is, is really just to keep the lights on, to keep the power on. Well, and then we know that. That's, that's not in dispute. Uh, David, comment on what, what Brian has said, please. Yeah, so I, I think one of the things that we're, we're seeing more, and we're talking about supply chain uh, issues here, we're... We're finding we're pivoting more to the distribute to the distributed side and to the demand side. And you know, as we talk about all the renewables coming online, and that certainly has changed the shape of our load. Uh, the other thing, and, and certainly in, in our territory, uh, it, it, you know, it's uh, the work from home. Uh, people are it, it's a lot more of an international influence just because uh, we've got. Uh, companies that have uh, headquarters in you know in Japan or other places of the world, so it's it's no longer the what I'll call the eight to five window, if you will, of when people are working. So we're 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 actually seeing pivoting, uh, you know, on the on the demand side and how how can we accommodate from from that standpoint to uh, to Brian's point. I mean, we we definitely want to keep the lights on, and that's uh, you know, so it's 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 as much to us about the shape and how we can react and uh, effectively being proactive about, well, you know, we have these electric vehicles. Can we uh, utilize them when they're charging as uh, to help supplement our source, uh, on, uh, which reduces the district, the, our, our demand and our load uh, uh, and, and yeah. make it where it works for everybody. There, there are a lot of shaping. I like the way you use the word shape, the shape of the demand, the shape of the, uh, I, a lot of shaping has to go on to accommodate a private cars as a storage system, the utility, and the owners are going to want to be compensated in some way, either with free electricity or with cash. Uh, and that's going to require a whole new regime 
of meters that go both ways. At present, your meter is a one-way direction. Now you have to have a meter that goes two ways. Yeah, so Still, well, we, we actually, and our members implemented the two-way meters. Uh, we So we've got that just about all across our system and we put those in place uh, probably five years ago. I mean, it's, it's they've been in place actually for a, a little while. They weren't necessarily uh, at the time. I can, I mean, like what we're talking about, we've never dreamed of some of these things. They weren't necessarily intended to go two way per se, at least not to the extent they are. But it's it was one of the functions that they the meters were capable of performing, and and so that's that actually has been helpful and allows us to move some a lot of these processes and put them in place faster than what otherwise we would have, because it would have been a a, a nice uh, load to bear to to get. Uh, replace all that infrastructure. Um, before we go back to Brian, what are you doing about storage? What are you doing on your system about storage? So we're we've got uh, a lot of uh, batteries that are looking on, onto our system, and just to put it in perspective, I mean Brian's talking about Southern Cal Edison and three uh, three gigawatts. We've got uh, just we've got 1.2 gigawatts, and you know we we've been joking internally about those all of us back to future fans almost enough to power a time machine but uh you know we we've uh, we definitely have a lot smaller system uh you know we only got 100 or about uh, two to 300 miles of transmission line so you know we're we're looking we, we're impacted based on their in connecting to our system and then wanting to operate as well as trying to see how uh, how does it fit with our members and uh, you know the challenge that we're having, Llewellyn, you mentioned about the four uh, four hour batteries. A lot of the batteries that we're seeing are one hour batteries, and, and that's a that's a bigger challenge to incorporate into our system than those four hours. So, okay, that's very interesting, Brian. Um, any comment? Yeah, I, what I so when we started the show, you said I've been doing this for a long time. I've been doing this for now twenty years, and when we started with Smart Power, we couldn't have imagined that electric utility companies would be incorporating, we, we couldn't imagine battery storage for solar. So we couldn't imagine that electric utility companies would be incorporating solar storage into their, into their uh, feed. And what I think is so interesting is kind of, you, you do see a Jekyll and Hyde situation with some of these utilities where they're incorporating battery storage themselves. And then we do have utilities across the country then uh, not implement or trying to implement bad policies on, re on residential solar. So we kind of want to work together so that we actually have good residential solar policies tied with uh, util utility scale. I think, uh, Brian, this is a very interesting point, but just explain residential solar as opposed yeah. to uh, the, the alternative is so-called utility scale, which is a yeah. very large solar farm managed by or by a free contractor contracted to the utility. Yeah, that's right. And, and kind of what most Americans would think of as solar is one house with solar panels on that house. That's kind of rooftop solar. And a utility by and large has challenges with rooftop solar. And, and in part, I understand why, and kind of that, that two-way uh, transmission that we just talked about, that it's really hard for a utility company to, if you will, see that a house has solar. And because um, the grid was not designed to go both ways. It was designed to get power to your house and that's about it. Um, and so when you have solar in part with different policies such as net metering, they're supposed to get the power back in some cases. Um, and 
that's a challenge for a utility. They can't tell if a house has solar. And so in that case, they're kind of like, well, they still have to buy power for your house, even though you may not be buying power as much power from them on a given day. Those are, are significant challenges, but not insurmountable challenges. The grid is changing. Technology is changing. We are changing the way we interact and use energy on an individual basis and on a large scale basis. And that's kind of just part of what we're dealing with today. That's the transformation that's happening in energy today. And individuals and utilities and, and quite frankly, municipalities are dealing with it on a, on a on, we'll have to just deal with it in the long term. David, you, you operate a utility. Uh, so how, how, do you, how do you respond to what Brian just said? Yeah, so I was just I was going to comment, Llewellyn, that uh, you know I think one of the things and the tools that we're uh, working through is the data, because if we can put the data in a format that the residential consumer can uh, easily interpret, as well as what the utility is seeing, you know that's where we can try to get that that communication back and forth of what makes sense, because I, I think. What we're seeing is the the the, the end consumer, that residential uh, customer at the end of the line, is becoming a lot smarter, a lot more adept, and a lot more comfortable with those type of decisions. Uh, well, you know what? I am going to adjust my usage, uh, and certainly if we as we have electric vehicles coming in, that really starts to add add up. Uh, you know, trying to shift, trying to actually make a lifestyle change. And so if we can facilitate that data in a format that makes it easy to understand, incentivizes at the right times, uh, and encourages folks to to, to act in a, in a certain manner that uh, helps to be beneficial, you know, that that's really where we're uh, trying to work through. Uh, the challenge is there's such a sheer volume of data as how do you parse through what's important and what is really relevant. And where you sit on the edge of, uh, David, on the edge of Dallas, you have a lot of sunshine. Uh, do you have a lot of rooftop solar? We have a fair amount of rooftop solar uh, in, in our area. It's, it's uh, certainly not to the extent of, uh, say, in Arizona or, you know, out, out, the, out west, but we're, we're certainly seeing more of that uh, uh, here. Uh, coming coming in, I'll, I'll tell you, we're we're definitely seeing a lot more residential uh, generation being installed, uh, and and that's a fallout. I mean, you know, here in Texas, we talk about the AC and the air conditioning load, but uh, our, our winter storm last year really, uh, when people were without power for uh, hours, uh, you know, for actually for days. And for certain period of time, uh, we've seen a tremendous impact. I mean, almost a doubling of just uh, residential generators in our area. It's been significant. That's very interesting. Uh, I think just so that people understand when we talk about what happens when you lose electricity, the official death count from Storm Uri just over a year ago, February, um, was 246 unofficially people think more people died and they died uh, from freezing to death and they died from trying to get warm and uh, uh, carbon monoxide poisoning because they weren't ventilating their houses in some instances they were putting those little gasoline generators in the house and that's lethal so uh, it's worth noting that very high death toll why we talk about electricity and why it's so critically important. Uh, absolutely. Uh, Brian. 
Well, David was talking about, you know, collecting the, the data and that that becomes unbelievably important. And what's so fascinating is that we're seeing um, these utilities don't have even the, the mechanism to actually collect that data. So for so long, you know, as environmentalists, we've been talking about smart grid, smart grid, smart grid. And the ability to create a smart grid can't actually happen unless we give the utilities the tools, unless they actually create the tools, they have the tools, it's quite funny to use their, to, to collect that data. And so much of that is actually, you know, we are all, there's so much information going on on, on, on broadband that they can't collect it all. So, you know, there, there are tools such as, as uh, creating their own private LTE where they can then actually use, get all the data that they need. Let's go back and look at the future in a different way. We are where we are today because of technology particularly technology in producing oil and gas and fracking, technology in storing electricity, technology in electric vehicles, etc. Uh, what about future technologies? And I'll throw out some things. Better batteries. Uh, for example, will utilities in 10 years, David, be using iron air batteries, uh, which apparently have a much better drawdown? It's using the technology of rusting uh, to to store electricity, which is totally fascinating. Uh, we are looking at people who are looking for, to do data without data mining, uh, various systems of getting into the blockchain without having to do the proof of work, which is the enormous uh, consumer of electricity. Um, there is a new world of technology coming. And there is, when we look at fossil fuels, particularly at natural gas, uh, I keep hearing that we're on the cusp of learning about really successful carbon capture, utilization, and storage. Uh, how do you guys feel about these technological possibilities, which will once again upend the electric system? Um, David. Yeah, I, uh, so uh, Llewellyn, I, I certainly don't claim to be a, an expert in, in any and all those uh, technologies, but I've been in the business long enough that I, I can state with confidence that 10 years from now, uh, we will have better technology, we'll be more efficient, and it will uh, be, we'll, 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 we'll certainly be better off than what we are, are today. I, I think one of the challenges that we have is what are the incentives to encourage those new, uh, those new technologies? And I don't, not necessarily grants or, or government funding, but you know, one of the dichotomies that we're in is we have to operate in an electric market to acquire the power for to, to keep the lights on. And what's the market signals that we're seeing? And are they encouraging those types of quick start, you know, the batteries technology? And because that's where that's going to incentivize us to then implement and work through and develop these these newer technologies. But I do think you know, it's it, this is this is an exciting time to be in the electric industry because it's continuing to change. Um, what have you seen change in your twenty years of pushing uh, solar power? Um, so I, I well, I, I agree exactly with what you both said, and then I think it's about consumer consumer adoption of this as well, and that's what's been so fascinating to me in these twenty years. And by consumer adoption, I also mean adoption by, if you will, corporate America. That what we're, what's been so fascinating to me is when we started Smart Power, we could not get 
uh, a corporate CEO to stand to, to say anything to, to support kind of what we were talking about. Well, that's very true. We could yeah. not at that time get CEOs to even admit that there was climate change. Totally. Oh, concern. And, um, now, and now, now there are charge. Also, yeah. you had a, a sea change of executives, more younger people in it, C suite people who grow up with the concept of climate change as a reality, uh, as opposed to their, <coughs> their predecessors who were, uh, grew up in the energy crisis and saw energy as the only, the availability of energy as really their divine mission. Well, and this, the, the, this concept of, you know, environmental and social governance is actually really controlling the boardrooms now, and it actually has a bottom line impact, and so they have to pay attention. It's not about public relations. It's really having a bottom line impact for the CEOs and everybody in the C-suite. So it actually, they really pay attention to it. And they have, they're incredibly motivated, not just for altruism, but actually for their bottom line. And that really makes the difference. So it's, it's really pretty exciting. We're getting towards the end of our time. David, do you have some last remarks to make? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the advantages that we have as cooperatives is we're member owned. And, and I think that really gives us an insight into what our members uh, want and, and lets them help dictate a lot of the things that we want to do. I mean, we're uh, trying to facilitate all this that we can and, and make sure that we balance, you know, that with what's being, what's, what's prudent. But, uh, you know, uh, there's, there, there's a lot of opportunities here. Uh, we're certainly trying to, to do uh, and implement uh, structures and facilities in place, the infrastructure so that we can accommodate. We don't know what's exactly down the road, but we're going to do everything we can to be ready for it and be flexible. Brian? Yeah, well, I just, uh, to reiterate what we also just said, which is that this is an unbelievably exciting time. We're seeing kind of real scary stuff from Ukraine and from Russia, uh, specifically about energy, and it's squeezing us here at home right now. But believe it or not, it's unbelievably exciting. And these changes that are coming, we're gonna, we all can actually be part of that and actually make this change happen. I want to point out, Brian, that you came quite late to the energy business by my terms. I, I founded the Energy Daily in 1973. Uh, um, uh, I agree. I think that, that the big crunch is going to be supply, that we're gonna to have to find a greater diversity in battery technologies. To be stuck on lithium uh, iron batteries with the dependence on nickel, copper, <coughs> cobalt, and lithium itself, but suddenly you're going to get these disproportionately influential parts of the world, like a Pacific island that has a lot of nickel and 270,000 people is going to become terribly important. Or my, my homeland in Zimbabwe hopefully might become a little more important, a little more prosperous, but it does concentrate the supply chain almost to a dangerous extent. And in energy, we've been trying really since the 1970s to diversify supplies that were not dependent on Saudi Arabia or any particular supplier. Looking to the future of the battery, it is both the future and the problem, I think. Thank you both for coming along and thank you for our discussion. And uh, do uh, keep this going, you know, the right service. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, 
Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen.